leading in into the Flash, you have Shazam: Fire of the Gods, which we haven't really heard anything official about yet. There have been some trailers. Black Adam. I mean, what was the last DC film that had a good critical and commercial reception outside of that core group of Snyder fans who insist everything that well, at least well no they don't insist that everything things. is good because if it stars a woman then it's not good. For the Snyder Right. right. I, I think the one-offs, I think, are pretty... You're just asking for fire, Rebecca, with that. We're going to leave that in the edit and see what happens on your Twitter. All right? Yeah. We're just going to... We're going to use that as a pull quote to the episode. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. Here for our first episode, kicking off the new year 2023, where we will be looking back on the highest grossing movies of every major studio and previewing their 2023 slate. I am joined by this week, as always, our co-hosts, Russ Fisher, editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Happy New Year's, guys. Did you make it to the movies during the Christmas New Year's corridor or was it just like family and flight delays? Yeah, the family and I got out to see Avatar on Christmas. It was, Mom was very pleased that it was the first year since COVID that we were able to go back to our Christmas movie tradition. I insisted that we see it in 3D, which in kind of the small, not incredibly populated area where they live, it's the best that's available. How about you, Russ? How was your holiday period? You know, we flew in and out of Texas on Southwest, and we appeared to be literally the only people who actually had Southwest flights that happened. There was a little bit of last-minute rescheduling, but we got there and we got back. Unfortunately, we spent Christmas in a very small town that doesn't have a movie theater, so we did not get out to the theater, unfortunately. I'm hoping to go see Avatar this week, sometime Maybe Thursday night is the goal. So we'll try to do that. So yeah, but you know, my mom, 81, she's a lifelong, like her favorite performer ever is Elvis. And so we showed her Boss Lerman's Elvis. I was like, let's put this on and see what you think. (laughs) She's either going to love it or hate it. She loved it. So that was fun. I honestly didn't know how it was going to go. It's like, if this annoys you after 15 minutes, we can just turn it off and do something else. And she was completely enthralled. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, I was able to go down. uh, I'm here visiting my sister in Austin, Texas. I was able to go down across the street from where she lives and go to the Austin Film Society. They had probably the best Christmas movie of all time playing on the big screen. Eyes Wide Shut, my first time seeing it on, you know, theatrically, and it was incredible. Great auditorium, great cinema, the AFS cinema that the Austin Film Society runs. They have a very good bar, and I'm just drinking old fashions throughout Eyes Wide Shut. And I know, I know the movie by heart, one of my favorite movies. I leave while they're in the costume shop because you don't want to miss the origin. You want to make sure you've got a fresh drink for the what are you, What are you there for? Yeah, that's basically, the, you know, that's the price of admission, basically. So I go in to top up my old fashioned and in the bar, there are a couple of people there having drinks with the staff and they asked me what I was seeing. I told them, you know, eyes wide shut. They're like, wow, what part of the movie is saying? I told them, hey, you guys should probably close out your tab. If you have tickets, finish your drink and join me for the orgy in the theater. <laughs> After I said this, I realized just how horribly creepy I, I came <laughs> off as. I've said this to strangers now. Uh, but, but they were cinephiles. You know, we're all perverts. They all know. They all know what's up. Yeah, yeah. I hope they took it in stride. But yeah, if they Lydia tar me, now you know why. But that's, uh, that was my holiday period here at the movies. And it was, uh, it was an interesting sort of frame here where nothing really performed except Avatar. But slowly but surely, we're seeing the box office. Avatar not making a lot of headlines in opening weekend grosses. But it ended up coming off of the fourth highest third weekend of all time domestically. So that narrative that Avatar is a flop, that it didn't open huge, that isn't playing like a Spider-Man movie plays, 
that's out the window at this point. I mean, it's performing very much like the original Avatar did. <laughs> You'd have to think, right? I mean, numbers are now up to 400 million domestically here in North America. It's chugging along. Of course, the Chinese market being in the state that it's in, it's not going to be even comparison to the original Avatar that just performed extraordinarily well in China. But let's start with our studio report card and our 2023 preview with Disney, right? And in the 20th century, Fox, Marvel, the entire behemoth that we need to always address first when we talk about theatrical exhibition. Because guys, it was, it might have been a disappointing year for Disney. They lost $1.5 billion on a streaming app that, you know, is perfectly good, but maybe they over leveraged what they thought they had going there. But nevertheless, another year where there are more than three Disney titles in the top 10. We had four Disney slash 20th Century Studios movies hit the highest grossing films of the year in terms of calendar grosses. Let's start with Ross. Uh, what's your takeaway from Disney's year at the box office? Yeah, it's weird to talk about Disney because we have these different subdivisions within Disney, right? Avatar really provides a big uplift for Fox, which helps obscure the fact that there are still a lot of kind of integration pains going on between the Disney and the Fox slates. And everything in 2022 that wasn't Avatar, really, Fox felt like an afterthought for Disney. And, you know, it's nice that they had a couple of performers, but they had a couple of movies that you think that in a different era would have performed well. Of course, in a different era kind of encompasses pretty much everything that went on in 2022 anyway. But ultimately, you know, the Marvel stuff went really well, but I don't know that... Is really well good enough anymore for Marvel. It just kind of sounds like, eh, really well. It did okay. It did well. Yeah, that's where it ends up. It's like Black Panther's take is good. Doctor Strange's take is good. There's no question. The movies don't feel like they're shifting culture in the way that, say, the original Black Panther did. And there are obvious reasons for that. I mean, the original Black Panther is literally a non-replicable scenario because of the passing of Chadwick Boseman. So, you know, there's some things that are just not going to happen again. But then you've got Disney's Pixar and animation business, which by any measure was a disappointment in 2022. You know, Disney very successfully educated people that they can watch their output on Disney+. Plus. Moving Turning Red to Disney+, Plus was a mistake I think putting the release of Lightyear <laughs> was poorly handled. That has to be the biggest box office disappointment of 2022 by far. Just how underwhelming that performed. The disappointments are, I don't know, which is the bigger disappointment? Is it Lightyear or is it Strange World? Right, right. Uh, well, they're both Disney. Strange World <laughs> was a massive miscalculation. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of things about Disney's schedule where like they're able to create giant numbers with Avatar and with Marvel. But when you dig down into the details of Disney's releases over the year, it's kind of like, uh, okay, this could have all, it seems like a lot of things could have performed better. And it makes me wonder what we're really going to look at going into this year. Well, Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong. As you mentioned, Disney has four films in the top 10. If you look at the last full pre-pandemic year of 2019, eight of those top 10 uh, were Disney. And it's tough, obviously, to compare anything post-pandemic and pre-pandemic. There are a lot of other factors. But, you know, I still think it's a relevant statistic looking at kind of how the market may be evening out a little bit. Also, if you look at 2019, across those eight top grossing Disney films, you have Marvel, you have Star Wars, you have Pixar, you have live-action Disney remakes. Whereas this year, it's the three MCU movies and then Avatar. I mean, it, it's kind of getting a little bit more eggs into one basket situation over there at this point. I think that's an absolutely fair criticism to bring up, Rebecca. If you go from a pre-pandemic box office of absolutely dominating the market to a post-pandemic box office where you get four out of the top 10, yeah, I think that's going to raise some eyebrows. But let's not make any fantasies here. This is by design from Disney. Disney decided to put itself in this situation during the pandemic. They decided to take a theatrical property like Star Wars and turn it into a TV show. 
That's what they decided to do. They decided to put titles that could have performed, like Turning Red, as Russ mentioned, straight to streaming. Titles that never hit theaters, like Disenchanted and Hocus Pocus 2. Disney could have had a much better year if they felt like it. I think one of the biggest criticisms we had of Exhibition leading into a 2020 no one expected was that an over-reliance on Disney was the plug-and-play approach of a lot of exhibitors, we have to call it out, of just saying, hey, Disney did all the work for us. The gravy train is never going to stop until the gravy train got derailed by a bat. And now we're in a situation where the world's biggest studio is diversifying itself. And yes, you're seeing a concentration of more of one type of movie dominating the market from that studio. Well, guys, given what we've talked about regarding Disney's 2022, how do we think 2023 is going to shape up? I mean, we have MCU titles, but we also have some of the titles that, you know, but we also have some of the sorts of films that did really well in 2019 and are kind of getting their first shot back in the case of The Little Mermaid. Obviously, that's a live action Disney remake. We have a Pixar film in Elemental, which... Yeah, I mean, what are we thinking on these films? What are we looking forward to? What do we think has potential? Because I feel like 2023, it's going to be kind of a brand new ballgame in a way. I know the pandemic's not over, but it kind of feels like we're we're getting closer and closer to being back to pre-pandemic levels. Well, they're going to own the summer. You have to think that, right? I mean, you look at that corridor from May 5th with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 going into late July with the Marvels. In between that, you've got Little Mermaid, May 26th. Elemental, June 16, and Indiana Jones 4. Wait, no, it's 5, right? Because we not, none of us want to think about Indiana There's Jones There's no 4. Fourth. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> logical right. mistake. And then in February, you have Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania, which, I mean, February has been definitely a bigger month over these past few years than historically has been the case. I mean, January, February, historically, is kind of a dead zone. We definitely saw that kind of switch gears in the years immediately pre-pandemic with films like Deadpool. So yeah, I mean, we kind of know that the MCU movies are going to hit because they always kind of do, though I imagine eventually they're not gonna. But yeah, I'm really interested to see how the non-MCU, non-Marvel Studios properties are going to work for Disney in 2023. I'm excited about Indiana Jones. You know, it, it has to be older bridge from Fleabag. I'm a really big fan of hers. You know, the Marvel stuff is interesting. We've got Marvel has a machine built at this point, and those movies are going to perform to a certain degree one way or the other. I think Guardians of the Galaxy is the one that has the most potential because James Gunn's Guardians movies have been strong overall, and this is his last one. I think going into it, everybody's going to know it's the last one. It's going to have a feel of a movie that has consequence within that story because it's going to end a bunch of stuff, and supposedly it's going to be the last time we will see a bunch of these characters, at least as played by these actors. And that's one of the things about Marvel is that, you know, you kind of know that it's just going to keep going. So if you miss one, uh, you read the Wikipedia recap and you're probably going to be okay. So Guardians kind of stands apart because it feels like it has a little more consequence. And so that I would expect will be the high point of Marvel's slate for the year. We'll see. Indiana Jones is really interesting because Yellowstone is the most popular thing on television at this point. Harrison Ford is in a Yellowstone spinoff. That's great marketing for an Indiana Jones movie. You have to think that Disney is going to capitalize that on that in whatever way they can. And so in another year, in a year like 2022, I would have been like, well, let's see what Indiana Jones does. I feel like this year, Indiana Jones has more potential to perform And, you know, maybe people will come out to that in the same way that they came out to Top Gun. You know, I know that the studio would like to think they're going to drive those numbers. I just hope the movie's good. (laughs) I think that's a big part. All I really care about. Performing, yeah. You know, whether they make money or not, that's our hope as moviegoers. And when we talk about the financial expectations of these movies, really, all the ones we've mentioned so far are expected to do well at the box office. There are two questions of movies that may struggle a little bit, but could still overperform. We're talking about Wish, an animated title coming out on November 22nd. We've seen that corridor be a problematic one for Disney animated films for the last two years. Russ brings up Strange World. And the prior year, we had Encanto that also didn't really find an audience theatrically, though it did find one, coincidentally, on Disney+. Plus. We've got this year also Haunted Mansion coming out on August 11th, right in the middle of the summer. That seems like a classic sort of 
kids are about to go back to school. What do we have here that we can just stick in theaters? Moving on to Universal, the top two films of 2022, Jurassic World Dominion and Minions, The Rise of Gru, both franchise films. Third was Nope, one of my favorite releases of this last year. Russ, what stuck out from you 2022 from Universal? Because they had some hits and some misses, even within just the horror franchise alone. Yeah, you know, you look at horror for Universal, which, you know, it kind of Universal in a way owns the image of a horror making studio. And they did live up to it in a way this year. You know, you had Nope, which is great and performed well. Black Phone did really well for them. Halloween Ends, I loved it. Other people hated it. It was a controversial movie. I think it would have done better if it had not had a day and date theatrical and Peacock premiere. But then you get like Firestarter, which was terrible and performed terribly. And, you know, overall, the thing with Universal is kind of like with Disney in that you've got these, a couple of big successes, Jurassic World and Minions. Nope certainly counts. But what was more notable for Universal were the things that completely fell off the map in a way that, you know, certainly was not in the studio's plans. You know, you think about Bros, uh, The Fablemans, she said, all of these titles should have been much bigger movies than they were, especially bros. And they just couldn't make it happen. They had a great summer. This was Universal's summer and also Tom Cruise's. But, you know, that's another story we'll go into in a bit. Universal with Jurassic World coming out in June. Minions over July 4th weekend. And Nope at the end of July. It was a very, very good summer for them. But you're right. Outside of that, uh, I think they tripped up a bit. Yeah, Daniel, it looks like uh, next summer for Universal is going to be a banger as well. They're kicking off the summer April 7th with the Super Mario Brothers movie, which I know our uh, chief analyst, Sean Robbins, is super bullish on. In May, there is Fast X, which do they even need to market this franchise anymore? I think it's pretty much has a built-in audience at this point. And then in late July, they have Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which is one of my personal, uh, you know, most anticipated movies of the year, the more kind of non-IP adult skewing blockbuster that Nolan, with a few exceptions, has really managed to bring home. And just uh, sort of the uh, sort of the tar of summer blockbusters. (laughs) (laughs) You can still you can you can still reach out to Russ at Russ.Fisher at boxoffice.com if you want to get pull quote permission (laughs) for that one. Universal. Well, yeah, I think you bring up the the three movies that, that Universal has the most riding on this year. There's a titled Migration coming out in December that as soon as we see a little bit more marketing material on, I think we'll have a better understanding of. But beyond that, guys, Universal is a sort of studio that will surprise you with a movie that can overperform in relation to its production budget, in relation to where the calendar is. The first one coming out is coming out this weekend, Megan, a movie about a creepy doll. Which has been very popular and a lot of buzz since that first trailer came out. It's Social media has been all over this movie and it's PG-13 too. So there might be something to that. We'll have to see how, how that plays out at the box office. Again, it doesn't have to be a $100 million movie, but it can perform well in a market that needs you know mid-range titles. You've got movies like Knock at the Cabin coming out on February 3rd. Titles like Book Club 2, the next chapter, which is going to be a massive question mark in terms of demographics. Do older women feel comfortable coming back to the theaters in groups? That's coming out on May 12th. And then we've got a title that I think we're all very curious about on October 13, Exorcist. That's going to be the Bloomhouse relaunch of the Exorcist franchise. November 17th, we have Trolls 3. I'm kind of getting flashbacks just talking about it because obviously Trolls World Tour was a big news story. It was one of the the first wave of films to just go exclusively to streaming, avoid theatrical entirely as the pandemic started. You mean the film that nearly killed theatrical exhibition, Trolls 2? So how (laughs) Trolls 3 is going to do? That in the third one, yeah. Yeah, but no, I'm I'm looking forward to their horror films. We're looking forward to Megan and uh, and Renfield and I'm curious about The Exorcist. So I'm, I'm going to wait on any looking forward to or dreading until we start to see any bit of marketing material straggle in. Yeah. You know, like Sean, I'm bullish about Super Mario Brothers. They've basically done the Lego movie version of a Super Mario Brothers story is what it looks like. They've even got Chris Pratt voicing Mario. They've made a very game accurate film 
You know, it really does look exactly like you would expect a Mario Brothers movie to, to look at this point. Partnered with, you know, it's Illumination Entertainment, which has done a lot of hits for Universal. So I think Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers failing would be a huge story because that would be like what happened. As it is, it seems like it is as close to a guaranteed success as you're going to get from any release this year, especially on a global level. We've definitely seen video game adaptations over these past few years have, you know, really kind of be in a golden period with Detective Pikachu and with the two Sonic the Hedgehog movies from Paramount. That second Sonic the Hedgehog movie, their second highest grosser of the year after, of course, Top Gun Maverick, which is the major Paramount title, the top grossing film of the year. If we just look at, you know, in calendar grosses, I mean, I don't think any of us expected it to do as well as it did for Paramount, though. We're all certainly glad that it did. Yeah, I think as we move on to Paramount in this part of the the conversation, looking at their 22 results and 23 slate, we're all hoping that Tom Cruise can work his magic once again at the box office. And from what I've seen of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which is coming out on July 14th this year, both at CinemaCon and Cine Europe, that footage that, that has already been screened, I can't wait. This is one of the movies that I'm most looking forward to this year. You went over the 22 results, Rebecca. I don't think there's more to add. Smile, than, Smile was another kind yeah, of barbarian of course, type situation. Very well, absolutely. You know, the Lost City that came and performed. Scream, another horror uh, horror title that did really well. I mean, if we look at the first three months of the year, I guess, last year for Paramount, they were really dominating it. Oh, they kept us alive. Are you kidding me? They they kept exhibition going when nobody else would. This year's going to be a bit different in terms of what they have on the schedule. Russ, I know that you've mentioned Mission Impossible as probably your favorite major franchise from the studio right now. What are your expectations for that connecting with audiences especially coming off of the Tom Cruise global rekindling that we saw this year. Yeah, I mean, I think Mission is in a great place right now. As you said, I I was not at either of those conferences that you mentioned earlier, but I've certainly watched that motorcycle stunt footage that they released over the holidays. I've watched everything they've put out for, for Mission seven. And yes, I love that franchise. I'm a hundred percent in the bag for Mission Impossible period. So, you know, but being objective, it's in a really good spot. Top Gun is a great lead in to mission. They're going to be very different movies. Top Gun is kind of uh, very explicitly and deliberately in an old school blockbuster mode. And that it's like, you know what? It doesn't matter who the bad guys are in Top Gun. Not the point. There's a whole, you know, all of these sort of things that make Top Gun very easy to watch are not going to be the same qualities in Mission necessarily. And then the other question is, will Mission get an extended lead in from Top Gun courtesy of the Oscars? I think there's every reason to expect that Top Gun will end up with, at the very least, a Best Picture nomination. And to be perfectly honest, Top Gun would be a great movie to win Best Picture because it is super fun to watch. Is it the best movie of the year? No, I don't think it is. And that's not what and the that just matters. are about. That's right? not what it's about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you would go from a movie that almost no one saw in theaters, even if they wanted to in Coda, to the one movie everyone saw in theaters that by and large delivered and exceeded expectations. Yeah, I think Top Gun being nominated for Best Picture would be a fantastic end to that movie's story overall. And I think it winning Best Picture would be the best thing that could happen to the Oscars in a long time. And it would also really help Mission Impossible. So uh, we'll see what happens. Looking at the rest of Paramount's 2023 slate, we do have a variety of different franchises getting their latest installments. As you mentioned, we have Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. In June, there is the latest Transformers spinoff. In March, we have a Dungeons and Dragons movie, which certainly Paramount hopes will be a franchise starter. And then we have coming out in March, Scream 6, which Paramount put into production super quick. And then later on, a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Guys, of these franchises, what do you think still has juice in them? What do you kind of maybe a little bit more downbeat on? Oh, it's for me, it's Scream. I think that's the only franchise of the ones you mentioned that is on the rise. The Dungeons and Dragons is still, I think, an open question. We'll see how that plays out. 
But Scream is the one franchise that got a very sorely needed shot of adrenaline injected right into it. It's moving in a new direction. Nev Campbell is out of the franchise over a pay dispute, but they're also changing the setting, going to New York City. They're trying to change the formula out of the suburbs into the city. I think this is a fresh take that the franchise needed. I think it has a lot of goodwill from moviegoers. And it's coming out in a time of the schedule where I'm looking forward to seeing movies on March 10th. Everything else from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to Transformers. I mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. It's unfair to qualify in this way. But if it's not Tom Cruise and if it's not Scream, I still have structural questions about the franchise slate that Paramount has. But what I am given a lot of hope for, as much as I hated Babylon, and I mean I hated Babylon, I go back to what uh, Manola Dargis uh, opened her review in the New York Times with on this title, saying that probably the best thing you could say about Babylon is that a major studio still paid to make it. And that's a really interesting point that I want to echo here and really highlight. It's fantastic that Paramount looked at this script and said, yeah, sure. How much money do you need? <laughs> we'll put it up in Christmas. Let's see what happens. I think that gives me a lot of hope to where Paramount might be going. Will they keep doing that after Babylon's performance? That's, a, that's another big question, right? I think the franchises maybe don't attract as much attention as with other studios, but some of the decisions that they've been making with the films themselves, I think have been positive. Yeah, I agree with that overall. You know, ultimately, I have to just echo everything on Scream. They've done a great job marketing this movie already. And I think that the change of scenery for the story is the best thing that they could have done because you turn around a sequel really fast. And if it just kind of looks like another Scream movie, a lot of, you know, you're going to definitely see diminishing interest. But I think you say, oh, it's it's going to do something this franchise hasn't done before is a smart decision. Can they keep making those decisions? Doesn't matter. I'm interested in this movie and I see a lot of other interest in it. And so, yeah, Scream is the one out of all of those that isn't mission that I would be. And it fits um, in like a whole slasher legacy, right? That you saw Friday the 13th continually try this and it not really work. We know that Scream is a tongue in cheek franchise. Very self-referential. Hoping for some Jason Takes Manhattan vibes from this one. Yeah, right. Especially the group of guys that are making this title, the, the Radio Silence production team. They respect horror and they know horror very well. And they know what the Scream franchise is all about. I think it's in perfect hands. And I'm very excited to see what happens. And talking about franchises that are coming in with a lot of positive vibes, that leads us right into Sony which coming out of a 2021 that was all about that opening weekend for Spider-Man No Way Home, 2022 was still Spider-Man No Way Home. That was a title that dominated the domestic market for much of the year. If I'm not mistaken, it's among their highest grocers of the year, really, a 2021 title. After that, they were able to build on that success with Uncharted, another film starring Tom Holland. And uh, Bullet Train, which hit the $100 million mark that we all wanted it to hit. And I think that's met expectations by and large. It's a studio that maybe didn't come in with the same heat as it did in 21 with the Venom and Spider-Man film. But 23, guys, we've got two more Spider-Man universe titles. Rebecca, what's your initial takeaway of Sony's 2022? Gosh, I mean, my initial takeaway from uh, Sony's 2022 is not much of anything, honestly, because I did not see any of the films. There was not anything that was super interesting to me. Certainly, I mean, you look at the number four Sony release of 2022, and that's Lyle Lyle Crocodile, which is kind of part of the 2022 family movie slump. Um, Yeah, not really a good year for the studio. But that said, I mean, Going into 2023, you have uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse coming in prime summer spot June 2nd. So I'm really looking forward to that one. And it definitely looks like hopefully they could be uh, kind of on an upward trajectory going into 2023. Russ, on your end, what's your takeaway of Sony's 2022? I mean, in a broad sense, kind of dismal, despite a couple of obvious successes. But there are two things that I want to highlight. Number one, 
is the performance of the Crunchyroll division, where we've talked a lot on the podcast, and I specifically have talked a lot on the podcast about the way that specialty titles like anime movies are becoming sort of the mid tier performers that we need to see more of. And we had, you know, two notable ones, Dragon Ball Super Superhero and uh, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, the movie. Those two both performed really well. Those performed better. Those are both in the mid 30 million, actually 38 million for Dragon Ball Super. It's like, that's better than the back half of Paramount Slate. It's better than a lot of things. So it's like those movies are doing really well. And I hope that Sony and Crunchyroll are able to push that forward because I think it's a great thing to put those movies in theaters and give audiences a chance to see them on the big screen. I'm not even a huge into a lot of those anime titles. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of work that you have to do. Like I've never been a Dragon Ball watcher. And so I'm like, where do I even go with this movie? I have no idea. And it's not for me. And that's okay. It's fine. And I just like the fact that they're out there. I like the fact that audiences are a getting a chance to see them on the big screen and B that they're taking that opportunity. So that's super cool. The other thing that Sony did this year that I want to highlight and which a couple of other studios did too is re-releasing movies. The theatrical re-release of Morbius oh, was a spectacular miscalculation. <laughs> and yet, I think it's a great idea and I would love to see more of it. Also, the re-release of Father Stew. Father Stew, you know, probably a surprising performer for them. Only made 20 million, but it's, you know, kind of a faith-based family movie that they clearly thought like, okay, we're this did well enough. And they basically put the airplane edit of Fathers 2 into theaters <laughs> where it was an R-rated movie and they they basically they cut out some curse words and and were like, "Here you go." And nobody went, and I understand why nobody went, but I like the concept. Well, yeah, they Saturday Night Fevered it. That's what Saturday Night Fever did all those decades ago. You get a really dark, gritty movie with adult themes, but hey, maybe there's a wider audience. Let's make the movie that maybe you can go with a family to see. Even if it's a worse movie, you can still see the original. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah like Deadpool, the Deadpool yeah, I mean, uh, kind of approach totally yeah well i mean they put spider-man no way home back in theaters in september and it did pretty well it made about 10 million dollars it's like that's not a bad idea we saw that with paramount paramount put top gun back into theaters you know a couple of times and in a way that's a kind of a lie because it was never really out of theaters but they put it back on premium large format screens and then they did really they did one last little theatrical push with top gun after it was already on digital and it's like that's Great. Applying this sort of repertory programming approach to try to revive a slate that is a little bit underpowered is like, it. honestly, the fact that it didn't work is beside the point because I think they, in some cases, did it for the wrong movies. But I love that they're trying it, and I would love to see not only Sony, but other studios continue to do this, you know, going forward into 2023. I want to stress something that you said, Russ. Sony re-released maybe the wrong movies, but they did it for the right reason. They didn't have anything on their slate. They wanted to put out movies to their cinema partners, even if they weren't going to completely dominate the box office. They wanted to have titles that they thought still had some life left in them in the market, and they did. And it was a commitment that even if it didn't work all the way, I do genuinely think was appreciated. And I echo everything you said. I hope that continues to happen across every major studio moving forward. The re-releases don't have to be 40th anniversary repertory picks. They can be things that were in theaters two, three months ago, and you're just giving them another run. Well, speaking of one of those... uh 2022 re-releases Morbius coming up on the 2023 slate in October we have Craven the Hunter another film kind of in that Sony Spider-Man universe we haven't really had any marketing we know that Aaron Taylor Johnson is going to be in the lead role I'm super curious about this one given that the films in this kind of Sony Spider-Verse those being the Tom Holland films and then Venom, the two Venom films, and then Morbius, they're all super different in terms of tone. But like, how do you do that? Because they're all so different. And then it kind of seems like they're keeping them separate. I don't really know. I'm getting vibes of the, you know, 20th Century Fox X-Men franchise days when you would have like 
one character played by multiple different people. Like there was no continuity. They're just like, we're going to throw stuff at the wall. And sometimes you get a Logan and sometimes you get a Days of Future Past or X-Men Apocalypse. So Russ, is this a franchise that you're invested in in any way, like as a franchise beyond just individual movies? I think it's weird to call it a franchise because I don't think it is. It's an interesting experiment in that it's a bunch of spider movies that don't have Spider-Man in them and can't have Spider-Man in them. That's kind of like, it's almost like avant-garde in a way as major, major studio operations go. I don't know what Craven is going to look like. One of the greatest Spider-Man stories in comic books, period. Probably one of the 10 best Spider-Man stories ever published in comics is a Craven the Hunter story. So I can see why somebody said, like, let's do this. I don't know why you're not doing it as a proper Spider-Man movie, but setting that aside, you know, it's an interesting concept. I like the idea. So yeah, I genuinely don't know what to expect from Craven. That said, we're also getting Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse this year, the animated sequel to the surprise hit and Oscar winner Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which frankly, I think is probably the best superhero movie ever made. I would agree with that. Hands down. By a long shot. Yeah, by, by, by more than you could imagine. Yeah. Yeah, like that movie just did everything that I think you could want out of a comic book adaptation and more and did it in ways that we hadn't seen before. So Across the Spider-Verse does not have the benefit of a surprise factor because, you know, nobody really knew what to expect out of the first movie. This time, not only do we know what to expect, we expect a lot out of it. My question about that movie is that June 2nd release date. It's in the middle of all of these Disney titles that are going to be coming in with it's going a lot up against of the big boys them in the box office. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. It's either going to be one of these Disney movies or this one that gets pushed. I don't know which, but frankly, I think there's way too much traffic in the summer, mostly because Disney's packing a lot of its big hitters between May and July. Is there enough space to put? a Spider-Man animated title right in the middle of that. I do have that question about it. And so that's my first sort of like hot take prediction of this year. Something moves. The second one that I have is building something on something that Russ said. Russ, what you said about these Craven the Hunters and Morbius and Venom movies, which are Spider-Man movies without Spider-Man in them, I'll put money on it right now. That's what Amazon does with the Bond movies and the Bond franchise. Amazon MGM, I have every reason to believe, is going to find a way to leverage the Bond series to have the big theatrical events in theaters that are the Bond movies and then pull one of these Sony tricks in saying, hey, everything else outside of this Bond character, but within that universe, we're going to find some sort of streaming hybrid to work the franchise into. I really do believe that that model, whether it's successful or not, is going to be somewhat replicated moving forward. It is to, to an extent what even Disney's doing with, with Star Wars, right? You've got the big chapters that are theatrical events, and then a lot of in-between things that go into streaming. To close out with Sony and their final, I think, Certainly, they intended to be a huge release, judging by the release date. They have Ghostbusters coming out. And if you put out a movie on December 20th, leading right into the Christmas corridor, I mean, the reception for Ghostbusters Afterlife was good, despite it coming out during a time, you know, when the, when the industry was hamstrung by the pandemic. Sony has to have high expectations for this if they're going to put it out when they're putting it out. Well, and the thing with this Ghostbusters too is it's like they're going back to New York. They're, you know, I think that's going to be in, this is going to look the most like the original Ghostbusters of all of the movies that have been done in the wake of the original Ghostbusters. And that is certainly by design. It's like, okay, can we, you know, they're going for the remake cool thing and, I haven't seen Ghostbusters Afterlife. I have no, I'm like, I don't know what these movies offer me at this point. And it doesn't matter given that they're pegging this for that crisp, just immediate pre-Christmas release. I'm curious. I'm not going to, we haven't really seen anything. So I'm not going to go out here and say like, oh yeah, this is, this movie's going to hit, but it certainly seems like it has the potential to hit just based on what we know they're doing with it. I'm less interested in Ghostbusters closing out the year as I am with, the traditional end of summer movie 
that's like a dad focused action movie. The Equalizer 3, <laughs> come on, man. That's a movie franchise that is just doing great on basic cable. I'll watch both those movies in the Equalizer series if they're ever on TV. And uh, <laughs> it's a type of movie that I associate with that place in the schedule. And that again, doesn't have to break the bank. Sony knows exactly what they're doing going back into the well. And I'm interested to see how the movie plays. You know, we talked about video game adaptations earlier with Mario. Sony has a movie adaptation of the most boring major video game franchise ever made, Gran Turismo, which is Sony's hyper-realistic driving simulator. (laughs) A sort of game where if you love it, you love it. And if you don't love it, it's kind of like, what am I doing here? This movie is directed by Neil Blomkamp, who did like District 9 and Elysium. And it's kind of like, how do you make this into a movie? I don't know. Sony's putting it out in August, which maybe tells you that they're still not sure how they make it (laughs) into a movie. It tells you all you need to Uh, know about Gran Turismo is coming to theaters August 11th. And, you know, maybe it finds an audience. We'll, We'll see how it plays out. Bouncing back from a dismal 2021, we have Warner Brothers, which has two films in the top of 2022 compared to zero in 2021 because all the films there went day and date on streaming and HBO Max. Not the case this year. Guys, um, we already mentioned Russ Elvis, which your mom was a big fan of, of of Warner Brothers. And I am a big fan of too, by the way. Elvis is great. I will say about Warner Brothers. Yes, they did have two films in the top 10 in 2022. That's a good step forward after that very odd 2021 where the first half was a godsend to exhibition to have big movies come out at all. But then they overplayed their hand and were in a really negative position strategically for the close of the year. 2022, guys, only six theatrical releases from what we would call a major studio. Half a dozen. Are you serious? And there's a big reset button being pushed there that, Russ, you went into in last week's episode of this podcast. What's your takeaway of a 2022 where Warner Brothers was probably in more of a transition than any other major studio? Of course, they get spun out of AT&T and end up being owned by a company best known as producers of documentaries about animals. Yeah, you know, Warner's is in a really weird position, and I think that's reflected in what we saw out of them in 2022. That, you know, that merger was, merger is the word everybody uses, but it was really a takeover of Warner by Discovery. You know, that was in motion all of last year, and it only, you know, it kind of became finalized in the spring, but then the repercussions of that were rolling all throughout the rest of the year and frankly are going to roll through the rest of this year as well. We saw movies go to streaming. Well, not movies go to streaming, movies that were planned for streaming that could have been theatrical releases like Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy. You saw some things like that where it was like, oh, you guys probably could have gotten some of something out of this on the big screen. And they just didn't, they weren't interested in doing it. They're more interested in, you know, like Disney has been with Disney Plus in pushing the HBO Max streaming service. So yeah, weird year. But I think even setting that aside, the DC League of Super Pets fell victim to, as Rebecca described, the family slump. That movie it nearly hit 100 and it should have done better. You've got the Fantastic Beasts movie the third i think in a series that huh what they made a third one of those yeah yeah so so there's a whole series of movies after the harry potter movies you'll be surprised to learn this there's three of them now harry potter's not in them but they're in that world wow, and i hope cares. they found a good actor not going mm. through a controversial <laughs> period in their lives to helm this new franchise that would give it the stability it needs But yeah, Fantastic Beasts is a struggling franchise. No question. They seem to still, are they doing more of them? I don't know. And again, you know, it's one of those weird things where it's like it made nearly $100 million, but it had to cost, what did that movie cost? There's no way it cost less than 200 to make. And then, so it's like that movie is a failure, I think, by any margin. So yeah. And then from there, you've got Elvis, Black Adam, and Batman Elvis, I think a relative success at 150 Black Adam, absolutely a disappointment, you know, no question. So how much are the executives at Warner Brothers freaking out, given that three of their major titles in 2023 are going to be part of what Russ, I think you, I, I love the way you phrased it, the lame duck DC. Lame duck DCEU. We have uh, Shazam yeah. Fury of the Gods in MCU, then the Flash in June and Aquaman part two in Christmas of next year. 
maybe that'll move. Maybe uh, what? I mean, my goodness. I mean, look, the elephant in the room is Ezra Miller, the star of the flash and a very, very troubled person whose most notable accomplishments in 2022 were, I think, multiple arrests for multiple felonies. I mean, at this point, I think the most people are talking about the flash is to say, how are they releasing the flash? Yeah. Yeah. Warner brothers has sunk, depending on who you talk to, the numbers don't matter, but they're big. They've sunk a lot of money into this movie. And it seems like one of those things where it's like, it has to be released because they've put so much money into it, but they're clearly all, or I say clearly, but Lord, who knows you would think they're clearly not going to have Ezra Miller out there repping the movie and doing press. So what do you do when you basically have to hide or very heavily curate your stars, public appearances around the release of your movie? That's going to be next to impossible. I mean, talk about a massive marketing challenge that the Warner brothers has ahead of itself. Right now you look at the release calendar, the flash is set to come out on June 23. We already talked about that summer corridor between May and July. I'm not sure Disney's budging there. Right now, we're seeing a game of chicken on which major studio titles are going to keep their dates between May, June, and July. And we've got a really hard-to-market movie coming in the middle of that. I'm not sure The Flash stays at that point of the schedule. And if it does, does that tell you something about the hopes Warner Brothers has in promoting it? That's the other thing about it, right? Kind of like how we saw Paramount push Babylon to the weekend after Avatar The Way of Water. At a certain point, they saw the final cut and were like, ooh, (laughs) let's just cross our fingers, see what happens. Leading in into The Flash, you have Shazam! Fair of the Gods, which we haven't really heard anything official about yet. There have been some trailers. Black Adam. I mean, what was the last DC film that had a good critical and commercial reception outside of that core group of Snyder fans who insist everything that well, at least, well, no, they don't insist that everything is good because if it stars a woman, then it's not good for the Snyder. Right. I think the one-offs I think are pretty, you're just asking for fire, Rebecca, with that. We're going to leave that in the edit and see what happens on your Twitter. All right. We're just going to, we're going to use that as a pull quote to the episode. But um, I mean, to be fair, the spinoffy ones have, got in a good response. I mean, Joker did fairly well. Uh, well, but Joker is a different that's thing. That's a different thing. Well. Right, it's a different Joker thing. Joker is different. But you're right. Joker's Within different. The I mean, Suicide Squad, James Gunn, people kind of... But I honestly forgot that that movie came out. Right, but, but it found an, an audience maybe streaming. I don't really know. It came out during that weird day and date uh, era. We'll have to see. The lame duck designation that Russ put on the DC universe, I think, is how we're going to define it moving forward. That's another pull quote. Uh, you can reach out to Russ Fisher at boxoffice.com uh, to, to use in your marketing material. You have three MCU movies and three DCU movies in 2023. And, and I mean, maybe we'll be wrong. Well, it was going to be, it was originally going to be four MCU movies before Blade got pushed into 2024. Honestly, if we're really looking at it, if we're talking about shifts and whatnot, I kind of would expect the Marvels to push to fall. And if Marvel's pushes to fall, which is where Blade was going to be released before they kind of did a bunch of behind the scenes replacements and changes on that movie, uh, which pushed it into next year. You know, if the Marvel's moves, then other stuff, like I wouldn't expect Indiana Jones to move, but could Elemental move possibly? In that kind of winter corridor, Dune 2 has got to be the one that Warner Brothers is really pinning a lot of their hopes on. Dune 2. And and I mean, I would think that Aquaman as well, because the original Aquaman performed and where you're asking, like, what was the last one where it had a good commercial, you know, audience and critic consensus, I would say that Aquaman is probably in there. And also James Wan has consistently been able to deliver for whoever he's making movies for. So, you know, you kind of think that Aquaman is probably the most likely thing that, you know, DC execs are looking at as a or the Warner execs are looking at as a, as a strong performer. And then, yeah, Dune part two. It's amazing to me that we're talking about a scenario in which they adapted half of Dune and it did so well that people are absolutely juiced to see the second half. I never in my wildest dreams would have told you that that's how this was going to go. Uh, <laughs> and yet here we are. I'll tell you this much. That movie Dune part two is coming out on November 3rd. 
that weekend is my wedding anniversary. And I'm already trying to figure out how I'm watching this on opening weekend by myself. <laughs> my wife isn't into sci-fi. I'm not into these type of movies either. I absolutely loved the first Dune movie. She doesn't listen to the podcast. It's fine. It's going to be a surprise. Uh, once I go to the store for like three and a half hours to see what Denis Villeneuve delivers, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I'm excited for Dune too because it has to be the adaptation of the part of the book that actually has action in it. Now stuff going on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A lot of action in this part. So if you love the first movie, then you're going to be absolutely over the moon for the second one because stuff happens. But we do have to say it. The one movie in the Warner Brothers slate that we're all most looking forward to is Magic Mike's Last Dance coming out at the best date you could take Valentine's Day weekend, February 10th. Soderbergh is back. Channing Tatum is back. I can't wait to see this. Yeah, 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 same. What else is there to say? say Just I give mean, it to me now. XXL was such a del- I mean, it was one of those movies that like women would go see it in groups. It was a, it was one of my favorite movie going experiences of that year just because the audience was so into it. I mean, I don't know, can lightning strike twice? Are we going to have more like custom furniture design in this one? Like was in the first one? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm glad that this is, this is a Soderbergh that's going to the big screen. Uh, unlike the last two of his. I just love that it's getting a shot. Like I'm so happy that there's another one. I'm so happy it's in theaters that it's Soderbergh, like you said. So yeah, it's a good thing for all of us. And there's another sequel here on the Warner slate that looks really interesting. Again, look at the release date, look at the title, and there's no way I'm not seeing it. August 4th, The Meg 2, The Trench. Come on, man. That's a dine-in cinema, three beer, two hours of my life. I'm 4DXing this one. This is, but I'm so confused (laughs) because, I mean, the Meg, the first Meg, I had a really fun time with it. It's goofy as hell. Uh, But then the director of this one being Ben Wheatley, who's known for kind of super inaccessible kind of, well, not, they're not mainstream (laughs) films. I mean, a field in England. No, he's not an audience friendly filmmaker in any way, shape and form. Yeah. Here's the thing about Ben Wheatley. He's also done some television and some kind of episodic but approachable genre television. And then he was going to make a Tomb Raider sequel. He was going to make the Tomb Raider sequel movie, the sequel to the Alicia Vikander one that was basically thrown off the rails by the pandemic. And it almost feels like doing this Meg sequel kind of is his pivot from, you know, just him doing the Tomb Raider sequel was kind of wild, but you could maybe see it. It was like, oh, a chance to play with a really big like a big budget and do some big action stuff and whatnot. Okay. I see that. And then it seems like the Meg two was a pivot from the failure of Tomb Raider and failures may be the wrong word because like it implies that it was a failure on his part, which I don't think it was. I think it was entirely pandemic related that it just became a non-starter. All that said, yeah. Like what does his Meg sequel look like? I'm very curious. I want to see it. At the very least, it's not going to be generic. And that's the only thing I ask for in major studio franchises and sequels. Just don't give me a generic Black Adam sort of movie that's tested beyond any recognizability with multiplex mall audiences. Don't give me that. Give me something slightly different and I'll sign up for it. You know, I might not like it, but at least I'll come out of it with something. And the big question related to that is going to happen at the end of the year for Warner Brothers. Another crowded corridor as we look at everything coming in from mid to late December. Wonka starring Timothy Chalamet. Uh, A lot of questions there. I'm going to say one name. There's a reason that I'm willing to give Wonka a shot. And it is Paul King. Paddington. Who made the two Paddington movies, which are fantastic. Those movies are both so good. And that first Paddington, I mean, the run up to it was like, it was getting like made fun of. It was not by any means a sure thing. But Paddington and Paddington 2 are so good. So because of that filmmaker, I am willing to believe that maybe there's, you know, something at the core of Wonka that makes it more than like a weirdly unnecessary origin story. And that calendar, really, from Thanksgiving into the end of December, it's not about clearing it. I think we had that experience this year where we saw what happened when you only put Black Panther a week before Thanksgiving and then Avatar a week before Christmas. And that's the only two movies that drive business. We don't want that to happen again in 2023. But at the same time, things look busy. And I think it's fair to tell our listeners the same way we're speaking about that summer corridor from May to the end of July. 
from Thanksgiving to New Year's 2023, it is likely we see titles moved, perhaps even to 2024. It's just looks a little bit busy. And I think that's going to impact our forecast for 2023 at the domestic box office. I think a fair range, depending on these calendar moves, is going to be between eight and nine billion. Uh, nine billion, if things can stick to the schedule and perform really, really well. I think a lot of us are going to be happy with $8 billion plus if we can get there. But anything below that really is going to be a disappointment. How is the market going to fare without a $700 million movie like we have this year, for example, and without a $700 million like we had this year? And do we have something that goes anywhere near it? If we do, I'm not sure which one it's going to be. I'm not sure it's going to be Dune as much as I'm looking forward to it. Can Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning finish the year as the number one title of 2023? That's my pick, at least. What do you guys pick out of this slate from the five majors to finish the year as the number one calendar gross? I mean, talking purely box office, it's Mission. Same. Unless Indiana Jones conjures that Top Gun success. That magic. Right. That's going to be down to the movie. And man, have we had a mixed bag of results from that filmmaking team. But Lucas is not involved, and Spielberg is only involved as a producer. It's James Mangold making the movie and co-writing the movie. And, you know, Mangold's Logan was really good, and Ford vs. Ferrari is maybe the dad movie of the decade so far. So I can see it working. So I do feel like Indiana Jones is kind of the dark horse candidate. And also, when you're talking about biggest movie of the year, we have to take Fast X into consideration. Fast X is the other obvious... It's a franchise that depends on, to a large extent, uh, global box office. And <laughs> I think the big question at the international box office related to this is the new Transformers title. Those yeah. are movies built for a global audience. We spent less than a minute even talking about that title on this podcast. That's going to probably end up, if things work out, among the top 10 global earners of the year. But we don't know. I think that's, that's one of the big, big questions in terms of releases. Does Paramount still have that global box office magic with whatever's left of the Transformer franchise? And how does the China, how does the Chinese market evolve? I mean, which the film industry has absolutely no power over. I mean, that- oh, I think Paramount waits for the Chinese box office to recover to release that new Transformers movie. I don't think there's any way in the universe Paramount puts this out in theaters unless they're confident that the Chinese release date is locked in. And the Chinese audiences are back in theaters. It's just, I don't see the benefit of selling yourself short and doing that. And they did that with Top Gun. They kept on waiting and waiting and waiting because they knew they had something. Paramount's got a very, very good theatrical distribution team, both domestically and overseas. They take a lot of data points into consideration. That has to be top of mind. And we'll find that out in 2023. I do want to close this podcast episode, guys, by asking you, and we only went over the five major studios in this conversation, but overall, what on the 2023 release calendar is on the top of your must-see list? Maybe we already went over it. Maybe it comes from another studio, another distributor. What are you guys looking forward to? Dune, certainly, for me. The new Spider-Verse movie, absolutely. Indiana Jones, I'm curious. And then one thing we didn't talk about, because we still don't really know what the release is going to be, but Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon that is, I was going to say that one. You stole it. You know, that's a huge question mark. But I mean, it's Scorsese and Leo adapting a very popular and consequential book. It's kind of, you know, as close to a true crime sort of thing as they're going to do. So that absolutely. A new David Fincher movie coming out, Killer. I think that's a Netflix title, but that's still on the list for me. I hope it gets a theatrical release of some note but that one is up there absolutely and then you know for me a lot of times it's like it's difficult to say in january oh these are my my biggest movies of the year based on what we know right now those are the titles but we got to get through sundance and then see what happens at can that'll define a lot of the rest of the year for me in terms of the stuff i'm really truly interested in yeah i'm on the same boat with you i think we have to look at how these festivals play out see what's making the round as part of the critical conversation heading into award season. But we've been waiting to see and hear updates from Killers of the Flower Moon for years now. That's going to be an Apple Films release. 
That's another major question mark. How is Apple going to treat a filmmaker like Martin Scorsese? And an adaptation that Scorsese usually doesn't go to that often. When Scorsese adapts books, they're usually books that not too many people have read. He doesn't go into that well of a bestseller you pick up at the airport. David Gran is a fantastic writer. He wrote the book that this film is based on. There's a lot of expectation for Killers of the Flower Moon. I think that's going to be one of the most consequential releases of this year. But of course, I do have to mention being on this podcast, Creed 3, the frontrunner for best picture and best film of the decade. Uh, a lot of questions as to how that connects with audiences after being pushed away from the schedule from November 2022. I can't wait to see that. That's coming up in March. How about you, Rebecca? What are you really looking forward to this year? Of the major ones that we already have on the calendar, I think that Spider-Man and Oppenheimer are probably, and the Barbie movie, which comes out the same day as Oppenheimer. That's one that I'm definitely, I'm not losing my mind over it, but I'm so curious. I'm so yeah. curious. Oh, I think all of us who are talking about like, whatever you do, don't give me a generic studio picture. Greta Gerwig is every reason why I want to see the Barbie movie. A sentence I never thought I'd say out loud as an adult. But uh, I'm really, really interested. That trailer is great. That, that 2001 fantastic. mock-up, yeah. fantastic. We have John Wick 4 coming out from Lionsgate in 2023 as well. Daniel, I know that's a franchise that you're super into and that moviegoers have, have traditionally been super into as well. Yeah, there's a new Evil Dead movie, which, you know, was going to be a streaming release and now it's theatrical, which is cool from Warner Brothers, no less. So that's kind of exciting. I hope it's good. There's a lot to get excited about. I think that's my big takeaway. 2022 was a year of incredible successes like we saw with Top Gun Maverick. Wonderful surprises. None of us expected RRR. None of us expected everything everywhere all at once. They were great finds. And 2023 already has those big ticket movies that give you maybe a slightly more a tourist approach to a franchise on the schedule. Some sequels to some originals that were among the best movies of the last 10, 15 years coming to theaters. The big question is what sticks in the schedule, what marketing campaigns work, and what lets us down. And we'll be covering all of those details throughout the year. You can find new episodes of the Box Office Podcast here every Thursday. Don't forget to rate, like, subscribe. Russ, Rebecca, thanks again, once again, for joining us here on the podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening and happy new year. 